Every four years, the Summer Olympics occurs, and the next Olympic Games will last for 17 days. 205 countries will send athletes to participate in 330 events. The competition and the drama and the sport is absolutely incredible. But even more than the sport, what makes the Olympics truly unique, what makes the Olympics ultimately interesting, is that each athlete that is coming to participate is representing his or her people. And being part of a people is more than just meaningful. (laughs) Being part of a people is something that in many ways shapes your identity and shapes who you become. And every Olympic Games, as we watch people who stand on the platform with great delight or cross the finish line with incredible disappointment, we recognize that they feel that not just for themselves but for their people. And it reminds us that we too are part of a people. This morning we continue our series which we are calling From Old to New to You. This is a series in biblical theology. Biblical theology is the term that's used that talks about tracing the threads of the themes of God all the way from the Old Testament from the beginning all the way through the end. Think about the thread that is woven through the tapestry of Scripture from left to right or top to bottom. We're looking at important aspects about who God is and how he interacts with us in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and what it means for you today. And on this day, we are looking at the theme of the people of God. God makes a people for himself. Not only did God create all of humanity, but within all of humanity who are created in his image, he creates for himself a unique, specific people with an identity and an eternal purpose. And if you are here today and you call Jesus your Savior and you've trusted him to forgive you of your sins, then the story of the people of God from beginning to end is also part of your story. And so this morning I want to ask you to come along on the story of the people of God with me. And just so you understand where we're going from old to new to you, To tell this story of the people of God, we necessarily have to lay some some pretty substantial groundwork through the Old Testament. But if you hang with it, the payoff is coming because what it means for you, because this is part of your story, is not only incredibly encouraging, but it will alter your perspective on your life and your spirituality. In Abraham, God makes a covenant, and he says in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring, after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God's covenant with Abraham has at least three components to it. The first one is that he would bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. He would form out of the seed of Abraham a people. Secondly, he would give this people a land, the land of Canaan. And thirdly, and most importantly, that he would be their God and they would be his people. God was not forming in Abraham just any people. He was forming his people. He was forming his people unto himself. Now Abraham followed God in faith and he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac followed God in faith and he had a son named Jacob. And Jacob was renamed Israel and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. These were God's people. And over the next four or 500 years, his people Israel would indeed grow from a small group of people, one family, into a good-sized nation. This people would be enslaved in Egypt, but God would not forget his people nor the promises that he made to them. Instead, he delivered them, and he did so by raising up another man named Moses, a prophet, who would deliver 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt. That's judgment upon them and deliverance for God's people. And those plagues would culminate in God sending the angel of death to visit the firstborn of everyone in the nation except for the people of God who had faith and painted their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. They were passed over. Time would continue. And by the time God's people left Egypt, Exodus chapter 12, 37 says there were 600,000 men along with women and children. God's people now numbered over 2 million. And from there, they were led through the wilderness by God with a cloud of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire by night. They were given the law through the prophet Moses. God dwelt among them in the tabernacle and they eventually made it to the land in which he had promised them. Time would continue and Israel would have seasons of obedience and faithfulness to God and seasons of rebellion against God. God was to be their father and their king. They were his people. And yet Israel wanted to be like the other nations and establish their own king. And they did just that. A temple would ultimately be built in which God would dwell among them for the sake of his presence in their midst and their worship to him. But eventually the people would rebel again. God would discipline them and send them into captivity. 
And after years of apathy or rebellion against God, they would again repent, turn back to God. He would bless them, restore them, and establish them once more. Israel would eventually split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. But the cycle would continue. Seasons of faithfulness to God and thus blessing as a result and seasons of unfaithfulness to God and hence judgment and discipline as a result. But God, even though his people went through seasons where they turned away from him, God never turned away from them. He did not forget his promises. They were his people. And he was jealous after them. Now, if your bride starts to show attention to another man, you become jealous. If your children start to call another man their father, you become jealous. And so it is with God and his people. God had formed these people. He had loved these people. He had blessed these people. He had delivered these people. They would not be let go by God. He would not go back on his promises to them. God was jealous of them. They were his people. And eventually... God would send a savior for these people that would restore them to him forever. As you look at the Old Testament people of God, there are some key components that made these people his people. And here are just a few of them. The first one is that these people were chosen by God. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now this is important because it shows that no amount of effort, status, or initiative is enough to bring someone into the people of God. These people didn't choose God. God chose them. Another key component of these people is that they were not only chosen by God, they were redeemed by God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, the prophet writes, Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God not only redeemed these people, but he redeemed them and he has a specific purpose for them. The purpose of God's people is twofold and it's found throughout the Old Testament, but notably in Isaiah 49, 3 and Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 49 says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. God will be glorified. That's the purpose. Isaiah chapter 60 says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness, the darkness of the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
God's purpose in having a people was that, yes, to bless those specific people, to bestow his favor upon them. But even more than that, God's purpose of having a people was to display his glory to the rest of the world in them. Let me say it again. God had a purpose for these people. It was to bless them, but his greater purpose was to display his glory in the world through them. And that's really important to understand because once you understand that interaction of God and his people and his purpose for them, now you can understand the arc of the Old Testament and its framework as God interacts with them in love, in blessing, in discipline, and judgment. God makes his glory known through these people. And it also gives you the requisite understanding, the foundation for how he interacts with people in the New Testament as well. And so pause with me for a minute. Pause in the story and think about where we've been over the last couple of weeks and how all of these things start to relate together. Because the threads through the tapestry of the story of God are all interconnected, as you might imagine. And what we've heard over the last three weeks in many ways comes together in this idea that God has a people for himself that he has formed. In week one, we saw that God makes promises and covenants as the framework for how he relates to people and specifically to his people. And the culmination of those covenants is found in the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it was faith that led those people to obey the stipulations of those covenants with God, and it was a lack of faith that led them to disobey their part of the covenants with God. The new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ culminates to the promise of God of how he would relate to his people through faith and forgiveness forever. The next week we saw how God established priests and the tabernacle and ultimately the temple as the mechanism by which a holy and just God could relate to a sinful people. The people needed a mediator between them and God and the priests served as that mediator and they desired to dwell, for God to dwell among them. And the tabernacle and ultimately the temple served as that dwelling place. But we also saw that the ultimate mediator between God and humans is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the one, through his work on the cross, serves to mediate the relationship between sinful me and holy God and restore me to him forever through faith. And then we saw how God sends his Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to empower servants of God to do certain things by coming upon them. And in the New Testament, by working in their hearts to show them their need for a Savior, to give them the gift of faith, and then ultimately to empower them for a life of faithfulness to God by taking up residence inside of those who call Jesus their Lord. God would not only dwell among his people 
God would dwell in his people. And when you stop and try to consider the magnitude of a promise and a gift like that, that the holy God of the universe would not create a people and stand all the way back here and watch, would not create a people and even stand and draw near and listen, but that God would take up residence in the lives of his people is absolutely amazing. And so, Christian, your body is called the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And the church is called the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't do these things for every person throughout all of history. He doesn't. He does these things for specific people. And it points to the fact that he chose, he established, he redeemed his people. The people of God. And you might have noticed the key thread through many of his people, that God works and people respond. And the way that people respond is in faith. Yes, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jewish nation, were marked by an ethnic identity. However, the marker of the people of God throughout the entire Old Testament was faith. It was faith that allowed Abraham to have righteousness credited to him. It was faith that compelled Jacob to honor the crooked agreement of his father-in-law. It was faith that God would work things out that, that empowered Joseph to endure false imprisonment and as a result be in a position to provide for his kin. It was the faith of Moses who did not want to speak to go into Egypt and speak. It was the faith of David and Solomon and the prophets that allowed them to experience the power and the blessing of God and allowed the people of God to experience that same power and blessing. It was faith Faith was the marker all along of the people of God. They trusted him for what they needed. They did not see the whole picture clearly when they were imprisoned in Egypt or when they were in the wilderness or even when they were in the promised land or even when the kingdoms divided or when they were in exile. But faith, a faithful remnant of people was, was preserved to trust God even though they didn't see their life clearly. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, you don't have to see the whole staircase. You just take the first step. That's faith. J. Gresham Machen once said that the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. So after 400 years of the story of faith and faithlessness and faithfulness and struggle and blessing, God sends his son, Jesus, to be born of the people of God, to be born of the Jews, 
in line with the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, to provide for his people again and to provide for them in such a way that the people of God would expand exponentially because they would not be marked externally now by their ethnic identity. They'd be marked externally by the same way they're marked internally. Faith. And so the New Testament begins. Jesus comes onto the scene and right away we see that things are going to be different in some ways. John chapter 1 Verses 11 through 13 says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The Jewish Jesus came to the Jews and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus came to the ethnic people of God. Many did not receive him, but many others did receive him. When they believed, they became children. Friends, that is such incredible news. Because when you believe, when you have faith, the entry point for you to be able to say, God will be my God and I will be part of his people is now wide open. No ethnic requirement. You don't have to be part of a certain class. You don't have to be part of a social institution or part of a certain family. Now you might think to yourself, man, we live, this country's free. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. Think again. The history of the world is marked by opportunity and access through class and institution and family. If you have the last name Kennedy or Bush or Clinton, you immediately have access to the highest echelons of the political sphere. And that is just in the last 50 years. If you have the name Rockefeller or Vanderbilt or Buffett or Bezos or Gates, you will be propelled to the highest areas of industry and finance and technology. And that's just in the last 200 years. But we could keep playing this game throughout all of history. Access and opportunity is given to certain classes and certain families and certain areas of industry. Even today, if you come from a middle-class home, you have access to higher education and a different career path than you would if you came from a poor rural community. But if you want the highest blessing, if you want for your life the highest honor, if you want for your life the greatest type of access, access to God himself, then fear not. For you to be called one of the children of God, you need not worry. Anyone can have access and opportunity through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is incredible news. 
Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. God, in the New Testament, just as he established and chose a people for himself in the Old Testament, does the same in the New Testament. It's God who initiates the relationship for his people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, We should always give thanks to God, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. And just like God has a purpose for his people in the Old Testament, God has the similar purpose for his people in the New Testament. Do you remember what the purpose is? purpose of God's people in the Old Testament is to bless them, number one, and to display his glory in them and through them for the rest of the world, number two. And we see that for the people of God in the New Testament as well. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 speaks to this blessing. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. God displays his glory through this people. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says, in him, that's Christ, you also, after lesson, listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possessions to the praise of his glory. God makes his glory known through his people. You might say it this way, God displays glory in the world through his people as they are redeemed unto him. God displays his glory in the world through his people as they are redeemed unto him. God could display his glory in the world in a lot of different ways. He doesn't have to do it this way. He could display glory and power and majesty and might in all kinds of ways. He could give magnificent displays of light whenever he decides to act. He could make thunderous clouds that would shake this building to the ground daily if he chose. He could remind us of his severity through natural disaster after natural disaster after natural disaster. He could enact miracles regularly and daily just to remind us of who he is and what his glory is. But God doesn't do that. He displays his glory through his people for the rest of the world to watch. And so Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slaves and free and cripples and sick and healthy and strong and adults and children and black and brown and white are all part of God's people in which he displays his magnificence and power and glory. And finally, we see that where this story of God's people through the Old Testament is woven through to the New Testament and comes down into the place of your life where you see that this actually starts to become your story is when you understand that your faith in Jesus 
leads you to a particular type of relationship with God and a particular type of relationship with other people because the people of God displayed in the New Testament and into today are called the church. And the universal church, all the people of God, find their expression in local churches. The word church in the New Testament Greek, ecclesia, literally means a gathering or assembly of people. (laughs) What people? The people of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, 18 to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, my gathering of people, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Ephesians 5.25 says that Jesus loves the church, the gathered people of God. It's the church that's called the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12 and the ambassadors for God in 2 Corinthians 5 and heirs to the inheritance of Jesus in Romans 8. It's the church that's called a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2 and it's the church that's called living stones and a spiritual house in 1 Peter 2 5. It's the church that displays not only the glory of God but also the manifold wisdom of God. God, to the rest of the world, and to spiritual powers in realms that we do not see. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it is absolutely loaded with rich expression of what God does in you and through you. This is what it says. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all of the saints, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, listen, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the assembly of God's people, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God creates for himself a people. From the very beginning, this people has a purpose and he has a plan for them, and he sees them through the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights, and he is faithful again and again and again to redeem them and to deliver his promise and to display his glory in them and through them. The eternal purposes of God and the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of your redemption to become a part of this people Paul says, are displayed right now most pointedly in the gathered assembly of God's people, the church. God's eternal purposes in redemption displayed in the church. And when that happens, things that are secret or hidden are made known. (laughs) And the manifold wisdom of God that we cannot begin to comprehend is made plain. 
God displays his glory in the world through his people as they are redeemed unto him. That is the story of the people of God. And that is your story. I want to close this morning and encourage you with five implications regarding the people of God. And when you recognize the significance of this type of relationship and this type of identity, being the people of God, these five implications and many more we could list will give you a new perspective, as I said at the beginning, on your life, on your spiritual life, and I think even the relationship that you have with these people at this local church. Implication number one, you have the opportunity to become one of God's people. Through faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what social class you come from, access and opportunity to be part of the people of God are yours because Jesus bought it for you. You need but express your trust in him for forgiveness and your identity eternally changes. And if you've not done that yet, friends, don't wait another day because God is beckoning you to come. Implication number two, if you are one who's put your faith in Jesus, you are one of God's chosen possessions, his people, then you need to understand that the promise to be his people is not a promise to have your life always be great, <laughs> for things to always be easy, for riches and entertainment and health to be yours. The story of the people of God is a story of ups and downs. It's a story of difficulty and turmoil. The people of God have been persecuted and are being persecuted. God himself has disciplined his people for their sin, but you need not fear because the king of the universe promises to be your God. <laughs> and what that means is that regardless of the season of life that you are in right now or the sickness that you are facing or the difficulty that is upon you or the financial strain that you feel in your life or the sin that you continue to battle and you just cannot seem to, sh to shed it aside that the king of the universe has the resources, all of the resources of heaven at his beck and call. And he will not leave you nor forsake you. He will always, 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 always see his people through to his intended end. And there is great hope and confidence and comfort in that. Implication number three. If you are one of God's people today, then you have a very unique opportunity to represent God in the world around you. In fact, this now becomes part of your greatest identity. What makes you 
you. Most people, when asked what makes them them, will talk about things like their job (laughs) or their family name or their ethnic background. But if you are part of the people of God, this now becomes the chief part of your identity. And I want to tell you what, to be known by God and as part of the people of God is so much better than being known as an engineer. To be known by God and as part of the people of God is so much better than being known by the last name that you carry. To be known by God and by the people of God as one of them is so much better than being known as a Republican or a Democrat. To be known by God and as part of the people of God is so much better than being known as an American. This now, in the Olympics of your life, is the people you represent. And even more importantly, you represent the one who formed these people, and that is an incredible privilege and a unique opportunity. And I hope that you display it every day from this day forward. Implication number four. God forms his people into the church and that church is expressed in local churches and this means if you are part of the people of God, this means that your spiritual identity as part of this people of God is tied to the church that you are a part of. So many people are tempted to look at and evaluate their interactions with their local church based on how it makes them feel or if they think it's cool or if it's comfortable or if they like the songs or if the message makes them laugh or cry or find inspiration somewhere in the middle. All of those things at their core are a way of saying what's in it for me. And we're all prone to that. I'm prone to that. We're all prone to that because inherently we're self-centered, selfish people in our flesh. But friends, that's the totally backwards way to think at your life and think about your life in the local church. What if you thought about it this way instead? What if you said to yourself and to others, I love the Lord and being one of God's people is the most important thing in my life because God is the thing, the person of the greatest value in the universe. And if he's the one of greatest value in the universe, then he's certainly the most important thing to me. To be known by him and found in him and loved by him and redeemed by him is what I want more than anything else. I want purpose and direction in my life that comes from above, not from below. And he does these things for people. God does these things for people and he doesn't do it just for me. And he doesn't do it just for you. He does this for hundreds and thousands and even millions of other people as well. And he forms those people, 
He forms them not as disconnected individuals in their bedroom with their Bible open. He forms them into his people, which he calls the church. How do I be a part of his people? I become part of a local church. Now, if you think about your interaction with the local church like that, then you no longer view this interaction as an obligation with hopes that it will give you good feelings on that day. But instead, you will look at your church with expectant joy because you are part of God's people and you will experience how God will meet your needs as his people. And you will see things you won't see in the room with your Bible open alone. And you will experience the manifold wisdom of God displayed for spirits and powers and principalities to see. You don't go to church if you're a Christian. You are part of the people of God. And your expression of being part of that people is being part of a church. Implication number five. This means that your expression of faith and faithfulness to God happens as one of his people with many of his people. And it stands to reason then that your ongoing joy and delight in the Lord is linked to your life in your local church. Your ongoing joy and delight in the Lord is linked to your life in a local church. And at this, some of you might be saying, Nick, man, I think you might be taking this a little too far. Because I know that being part of a church is important, and, but I didn't think it was that important. My joy and delight in the Lord is linked to my church? That's pretty intense. I know. It is pretty intense. It's a really big deal. Because the God of the universe is a really big deal. And the being one of his people and having that be the greatest source of your identity in life. That's a really big deal. And, and the spiritual purpose that God gives and the joy that you can have in him is a really big deal. And the things of life and death and eternity is a really big deal. And so, yeah, active, ongoing, functioning participation in the people of God at a local church is a really, really big deal. Is your local church perfect? No. Are the people who are here, people who are hypocritical and sinful, just like you. Yes, they are. Do your pastors have many deficiencies? Amen. No. <laughs> they have many, many, many deficiencies. 
But is this a people of God in which he does incredible things among men and women and boys and girls who are not worthy of him, but he makes them worthy because he shows favor to them and loves them and bestows grace upon them and he makes them his. He displays manifold wisdom and he does so in the church. God displays his glory to the world through his people as he redeems them unto himself. And you are that people. And so I close this morning with these encouraging descriptions from 1 Peter chapter two, Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen? Amen. Amen.